Hey there, this is Fred Pissarro, and you're listening to Metal Matters, the official Gimme Metal podcast, where we explore all things new, some things classic, but all things heavy, with my co-host, Michael Berdan. Ahead of his recent Roadburn redo appearance, we spoke to the one and only Aaron Turner. Since the late 1990s, Aaron has been an integral mainstay of the extreme music underground. With a resume that boasts such notable and influential acts as Sumac, Old Man Gloom, Isis, and Mammifer. Through his musical and artistic endeavors, as well as his curatorial activities in Hydrahead and Siege Records, he has been instrumental in shaping the cultural landscape of metal and beyond. Aaron brings a kind and thoughtful introspection to the conversation that is as refreshing as it is necessary. Don't go anywhere. Um, well, thanks for doing the doing this show, man. We appreciate it. For yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. The, the one thing I didn't know about all this is like, what what are you doing? Like, what are you performing exactly at Roadburn this year? Um, I didn't know <laughs> when I said yes. I just said yes, and then had to figure it out afterwards. Um, the invitation was basically to Old Man Gloom, Sumac, or solo or any project essentially which i felt was nice that they kind of just gave me um i guess they had enough confidence to assume that anything i chose to do would be suitable (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um but right now just trying to gather together with anybody is still very difficult i mean geographically under non-COVID times, Old Man Gloom and Sumac are, are mm-hmm. challenged yeah. that way. Uh, and the only, the only band project that was possible was Mammifer. And we already just did a, uh, uh, a show in our, mm-hmm. a show in mm-hmm. our studio. So that felt like that would have been redundant. So solo it was, which is not to say that, um, you know, that was like, uh, um, know something that i didn't want to do necessarily but i i wasn't prepared for it i mm-hmm. guess i should say um but i have been preparing for it as much as i could for something that's largely improvised um so i don't know i, I don't know what to say about it uh i've, I've been working on solo material th- during quarantine and I was kind of already in that mode when this came up so in a certain way i'm kind of applying ideas from a record I have in the works to this mm-hmm. live set. Um, but again, a lot of it's improvised. So much of it is just what happens spur of the moment based off of some ideas and sounds that I'm working with in a more general sense. Totally. Are you, are, um, do you think um, you're going to, you're going to apply those things to Aaron Turner, like um, Aaron Turner proper? Or do you think there's a bubble up somewhere else? I, there's it inevitably will come out somewhere else. I mean, there's no clean delineation between the things okay. that I do for okay. the most part. It, there's a lot of cross pollination between different projects. I can't take 
me out of the yeah, equation. Yeah. So what if I'm participating in something and everything I do in one project can become instructive for another. And of course that applies when I'm working with other people as well, they help open up new channels of, uh, of thought for me. And so that can help me steer in different directions for other things that I'm doing. Um, I mean, I think when people hear what I'm, what I'm doing for this, uh, they'll be able to easily recognize certain, um, sort of sonic signifiers as parts of other things Mm -hmm. that I do. Yeah, totally. For one of the, uh, the, the, uh, the most obnoxious questions that someone can ask, uh, to another, another, another person. (laughs) Uh, So like, you know, um, the solo stuff that I'm like, kind of like familiar with you doing is like almost free jazzy, uh, at points. And, uh, is this kind of, kind of like, uh, existing in that realm at all or are you are are you taking it a different direction um yes uh i'm i'm somewhat hesitant to use that term because there's you know there's some real cultural weight to what free jazz means i will say that i have been influenced by that and i take inspiration from it um and there are certainly Mm -hmm. um, people that i played with who are you know operating within that zone and 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 in a way it has brought me further into that as well but i would say that um this this music is um coming from definitely from a free perspective and part of that is also um influenced by by free jazz specifically but also just having grown up in a household where i heard a lot of jazz that was what my dad listened to primarily and um, I rejected it initially because it was my father's music and then I couldn't um, disentangle it from my own musical DNA later on. I found it had seeped in regardless of my, uh, my, um, my teenage uh, rejection of anything having to do with my, my parents' interests. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's in there. What was his, what was his uh, jazz vibe? Yeah. Like, what, what cool, kind of cool. stuff was he into? And then my dad was... But that was very hard bop kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like traditional. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, um, he studied it and wrote on it some, and basically everything from the origins of early jazz up until probably mid sixties was his era of interest, which is funny because once some guys he really liked like miles and Coltrane, um, entered into their fusion periods or their free periods that was like too far from him like bitches brew was like the last miles record that he could get into um so you know i think he had an appreciation of the later stuff but not um an enjoyment of it necessarily Um, but i'd say probably if i had to hone in on one era for him, it was probably like early fifties to maybe, you know, mid sixties or early sixties, that kind of 10, 15 year range. Cool. Yeah. I, I guess, um, yeah, I, I always found it interesting because I feel like, um, a lot of people, myself included got into jazz through, I think through hip hop and through like the fact that like, you know, like James Brown permeated everything in hip hop and he permeated everything in in jazz you know and and uh 
between him and all those players playing with Herbie with Herbie Hancock and like, uh, you know, like every one of those. That's definitely how I came to it as a, as an older person, you know, like being a Wu Tang guy and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> like going like go, going through samples and being like, "What the hell is that? That's crazy." Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna fess up and say drugs was my gateway <laughs> into jazz. <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay, I, I remember very clearly at age, I think age 13, I was starting to smoke weed pretty regularly and I was listening to, um, to a jazz CD of my dad's, uh, it was a Coltrane CD and I had never, I don't know why I was listening to it. I probably read something about how like Hendrix had started to get into jazz and had been into some of those guys. And Hendrix was like a portal to a lot of things for me, um, including Im improv in a lot of ways. And also like utilization of, of um, you know, distortion and feedback and stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, as I said, uh, after an initial knee jerk reaction against listening to jazz, I, I read some stuff about how Hendrix had been into it and, also how Miles Davis had really been into Hendrix. And, you know, there was, there was some um, boundary crossing that was starting to happen in that territory. And so I think I was, for whatever reason, um, I was trying to listen to jazz to see if I could get anything out of it. And so I was smoking weed and, and um, listening to jazz in my headphones. And all of a sudden it clicked for me. Uh, and I just heard one of Train's solos and it just, it was one of those things where, you know, the, the portal in the mind opens up and something comes in and it floods your system and then that's it. So that's, that's how I got there. And, and certainly there are other things as well. And hip hop would be one of them, like hearing jazz samples in so many different hip hop records that I was also, um, getting into had, uh, had an impact on me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I like I'll be totally honest. I I like jazz. I like jazz a lot. I've never really known how to how to approach it though. Um it, like it's one of those things that like growing up I wasn't particularly exposed to. Uh, you know, yeah. like, uh my mom's like musical interest like kind of like began and ended with like Whitney Houston, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, my, and my dad wasn't around. Um, so I like, I just took jazz as one of these things that I kind of like saw in the background on TV. I knew like, I, I knew that, yeah, hip hop would, would sample it. And I've, you know, I liked rap records with jazz samples, but you know, it really wasn't up until fairly recently that like I've like, you know, even like given like Eiler a chance. And like for me, it was like kind of like a backdoor through noise stuff, you know, where yeah. mm -hmm. I had gone from just like not knowing how to approach jazz to being like jazz is smart people music. So I don't want anything to do with it. Cause everybody that I like, everybody that I play music with is like classically trained or like, like jazz heads. And I'm like a, a knuckle dragging degenerate. And uh, yeah, only recently have I like kind of 
made this connection between like like I don't know, like Masana and fucking this whole world. So Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that also I think explains uh or relates to a lot of musical discoveries for me. I've just always been interested in artists who are boundary pushing and also in what is often kind of the most extreme form of whatever particular genre we're talking about. Um, and that applies to metal. It applies to jazz um, and a lot of other things that I've gotten interested in, including um, classical music, which again, I similar to you, I have no musical training and so my actual understanding of the mechanics of what goes on in that stuff is highly limited. But, you know, when I listen to something, um, you know, like Leggetti stuff that was used in Kubrick movies, that's like very dissonant a lot of the time. For me, that there's a direct correlation between that and like some of the first noise music that I heard from Merzbow. Totally. Or again, like hearing... Coltrane, again, just like as another touchstone, like I got into Coltrane from the same era of stuff that my dad liked, you know, kind of like his earlier, more melodic stuff. But then I listened to the later stuff and he's a, not necessarily completely abandoning melody, but like structure became a lot looser, um, dissonance uh, became much more prominent. And so for me, like that, that understanding or awareness of artists who are standing on the edge of their form and really pushing it is what I've always gravitated towards. And so anytime I hear that, regardless of genre, it almost always piques my interest. And sometimes it's like specifically because it makes me uncomfortable or specifically because I can't understand it when I encounter it, that's what makes me want to know more about it. Definitely. Definitely. I, I get that way with, uh, with classical music too, you know, uh, I, um, you know, you go from kind of thinking of it as, you know, for, for me, it was like background music in the doctor's office to, you know, hearing like Penderecki or something like that. And like, this is some of the, the harshest sound that I can imagine a human being making. And I mean, you've got to kind of like, like, these are people who uh, like, and like, like you said, kind of like with Coltrane, like these are people who know their, their instruments and uh, like, you know, like, then there's like, you know, for lack of a better word, like genres, like inside and out uh, to such a degree that they can begin to like, take it apart. And, yeah. you know, I, 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 I just find that to be like beautiful. Yeah. And I think that there's something else interesting to me and that um, in some of these people we're talking about, like um, Penderecki or both of the Coltrane's, John and Alice, um, somebody like Sun Ra, um, even someone who's maybe a little bit more um, traditional, a lot of ways like Arvo Parr um, or even my friend Daniel Menchie, who's a noise musician, a lot of that musical practice seems to be, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if Daniel would say this about his own music. <laughs> I know he's operating on several different levels, but uh, something about it has to do with transcendence. And there's a component of it in some cases that is blatantly spiritual. And I don't subscribe to any particular, particular spiritual, 
spiritual practice, but at the same time, people who are paying attention to that aspect of themselves as musical creators and what their music can embody is also interesting to me in that way. Um, that it's something, um, you know, that, that goes beyond, um, you know, just making some tunes essentially and, and using musical as a vehicle to, um, ascend to a higher level or ascend to a different level of existence. Um, Swans would be another one. I know that that, that there is a rigorous practice involved there that is specifically geared towards attaining that sort of transcendence. And so again, though we're talking about a lot of different genres here, um, so much of it to me has common ground in, in those ways, um, pushing yourself with your instrument, pushing yourself with uh, your sort of aesthetics, but also pushing yourself outside the boundaries of sort of normal, rational, mundane, uh, everyday existence. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I, 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 I completely agree. And, you know, it, to me, it kind of goes to, you know, kind of like the initial feeling that I have, like discovering, like discovering a certain kind of music, uh, for the first time and, uh, you know, feeling a sense of relation that I like didn't have to like, you know, humanity or the world at large through like through sound. And then like you start playing music and like, I, I can only speak for myself, but like the intention from beginning up until now has always been like, trying to escape my mind, you know, trying to get like, trying to get like the, like the, like the feeling of like, I don't know, like anguish or like entropy or whatever, like from outside, like from inside, take it outside so that I'm not feeling that way anymore. And <laughs> Yourself. Yeah, yeah yeah and uh like you know i i get this way with like you know i i have like a strange relationship with spirituality but yeah you know i feel like talk about weed again let's focus on <laughs> I, I, I mean they don't call it jazz cigarettes for nothing you know <laughs> but um but yeah man like i i i see the like the importance of like you know kind of like playing music as like an act of meditation and like like through doing that like getting to a place where like you are standing outside of yourself and you're standing like with something much greater yeah and i think that that can that can be a unifier even um, you know, amongst people who have on discomfort around the subject of music and spirituality. And, you know, I, I don't, as I said, I don't subscribe to anything in particular. And I also don't make the spiritual aspect of what I do with any of my groups, like the main focal point, um, partially because my own beliefs in that area aren't defined, but also because they involve other people who have other beliefs and, and who, um, you know, 
wouldn't necessarily want me to represent our collective efforts in that way. But I think what you're talking about in terms of some kind of common experience um, can be really significant. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's just part of the power of live music as people communing together in one space to inhabit, you know, a collective experience and feel a collective energy. And I think even people who don't subscribe to any kind of um, spiritual angle in music would have a hard time disagreeing with that. I mean, if, if, if there isn't something about the collective experience and being in a room with other bodies and feeling the physical force of music within your own body while being around others, if that's not present for you as an audience member or as a musician, then there's no need for live music, essentially. Yeah, totally. I mean, totally. that's what it is. That's what it is to be in a room with other people when that's happening. Um, you touched on something else interesting, which made me think again of Daniel Menchie, uh, just talking about, you know, trying to qu quiet your own mind in a certain way. Um, there was an event here in Seattle a few years ago that, that Menchie played. And I was at this place called the chapel, which hosts a lot of experimental music. And some of it's kind of on the more, you know, um, subtle and I would even say polite end of the experimental spectrum. So it's got a lot of those people who just, you know, want to sit there and, and, you know, hear quiet, abstract music, which is totally fine. But it was funny in this instance, because that was part of the audience at this Menchie show and he played a set and it wasn't just like a harsh noise, but there was definitely a noise aspect to it. And it was very physical music and it was very loud. And somebody came up to him after the set and was like, why are you playing so loud? I couldn't hear myself think. And he was like, that's it. That's it right yeah. there. You couldn't hear yourself think like that's the point is you've got to shut that off. And that's the same thing for me. Like my mind and not to be dramatic, but my mind is the cause of my suffering sometimes like just the, the endless parade of thoughts that are, that are tumbling through and distorting my perspective of the world. And if I can shut that off by immersing myself in um, an enveloping um, fluid of loud sound that has specific meaning for me, then that's a worthwhile endeavor. And, and I think that there is something about it and about, again, about playing live music that does relate to sort of the communal, the, the, the age old communal experience of people coming together to do something as a whole. Yeah. And uh, I think that's maybe a big part of the problem for a lot of us who are musicians and also music lovers right now is that the thing that really tied us to the world, being able to come together and do these things has been temporarily severed. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, you know, there's a lot of other shit that's way harsher and more important to, to, to discuss, but just, you know, we were here talking about music. I think that is, that is very significant. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's so significant on so many levels and then, you know, on, and, and just like taking away like any kind of like musical aspect and like kind of industry aspect and all of that. I mean, just, I know from a personal standpoint, I'm sure I speak for you too as well. I mean, like, so many of my so many important formative relationships that i have are formed like within live music and like yeah. i have so many like 
I mean, obviously you have your, uh, for lack of a better word, you have your A friends and then you have your B friends, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? And I've, then, got, I've, yeah. I've got a whole lot of Z friends, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? And a lot of times those B friends are very important to you as well. And those people are maybe you don't, you know, you, you would grab, you don't necessarily call, but you see them and it's very good to see them. It's very important to see them. And a lot of those times, those are people that I would run into at shows, you know, and, I'd spend the whole evening with them. Yeah. And man, I mean, not that I don't appreciate who I have now. You know, we're, it's funny because we're talking about this music that in a lot of ways has this kind of misanthropic slant to it. And certainly part of my early interest in metal was that it was like a big fucking middle finger to the rest of the world. Yeah. And initially that kind of just angsty, uh, response to things was enough for me. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, I've learned that even some of the most dour and seemingly misanthropic and introverted people I've met through music all have a need, whether they will recognize it or not, for connection to the world. I mean, even the one, you know, the 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 one man bedroom black metal projects, it's like if those truly were this purely isolationist act, the music would never be released. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, exactly. and I know that there are people who probably do that. And I also understand the feeling in a certain way of like isolation and how that, that in and of itself can be meaningful. But at the same time, I think that it is undeniable that people need other people. I mean, this is, this is biologically proven. We need other people. And that even those of us who occupy this realm of really difficult music that is sometimes um, purposely angled against the rest of the world in a certain way are still seeking community through this practice of being in bands and going on tour and playing in clubs and, you know, you know, back hearkening back to the older days, doing zines and tape trading and all that stuff. I mean, this mm-hmm. really is about connection. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I've been learning some stuff lately um, about child psychology and and um, uh, how people develop. Because I have a four year old, and I want to <laughs> want to figure out how to be a good, good parent, essentially. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I learned is about how our nervous system and our brains work, and one of the biggest regulators for our nervous system is other people. Of course, one of the biggest dysregulators is also other people. But I think there's a lot of us who really need that connection, even though it's like through this nomadic lifestyle of touring and going through other, going to other places, we need that process to be connected to other people. And sometimes it is about needing to go to the other side of the world to find these people who are your chosen family. I mean, that's the case for me, like with the guys from Circle and Pharaoh Overlord, like those are some of my most interesting creative friends and the people who I felt like an instant kinship with. And the only way I ever saw them was through tour, essentially. And so now, you know, these people who are, as I said, like my chosen family, I don't get to see them. And, uh, that's hard. And so, you know, this, um, this thing we're doing with Roadburn is funny in a certain way because Roadburn for me wasn't even about the music a lot of the time. It was about going to this place where I knew I was going to see like 15 people that I loved 
and got to see anywhere except on tour. And they were all going to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah. And so now I'm just like, yes, this is road burn. That's awesome. I'm glad that we're doing it this way because it's still something. But at the same time, it's like 50 or 60 or 70% of the road burn experience for me was getting to go see all those people that I only saw like every other year and we could all be together. So, um, it's wow. a weird, it's a weird schism in my brain to think about being a road burn participant while just walking out to my, you know, my home studio instead of <laughs> going halfway <laughs> across the world and hanging with some people that I truly love and miss. Totally. Yeah. Um, if I could digress, really, I want to tell you guys, I want to ask you guys what you think of this. This is a funny story. I heard from Andy Connors, actually. Um, oh, you, so you, you, you brought up, you, you reminded me of it when you said, said, um, said you were talking about the bedroom back black metal projects. Um, <laughs> oh boy. And, uh, yeah, be careful. <laughs> yeah, I've ruffled some feathers and there's the people I don't want to piss off further. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Same. No, Same. I mean, actually, actually the people that, uh, the people I don't want to piss off, I'm now totally, or the people I have pissed off, I'm now totally fine with like <laughs> continuing to piss them off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was just telling me about this, uh, uh, about this. He heard some song by some band that was just on YouTube, right? In very much indie fashion. And, yeah. uh, and then he was like, oh, shit, I, I want to get a hold of this, this tape or whatever so I can play it on my radio show. And so he reaches out. He asks the guy for a copy of it. And the guy says, who are you? I don't know you. I'm not going to sell it to you. <laughs> Which interesting is the wildest idea of all time you know but that gets back to your point about like you know like uh doing doing music for yourself and uh and uh so i guess on that level respect but and then on the other level of how funny that is respect too you know it's totally insane <laughs> Um, someone just sent me, uh, Jason Wood, the, uh, the grinning death's head guy just sent me, uh, a tape to send to Andy that I'd forgotten to send to Andy for the past month. So this, this is, this is a good reminder. I'm going to put it in my, I'm put it in my pile. Um, I, I, I do understand the idea of, of the preciousness of these little communities. And I also understand, um, in a way really being even defensive of that um because you know your friends your friends can be really important to your sense of well-being and the thing that binds you together which in many cases for people like us is music can be very crucial and when you feel like that territory is being encroached upon um you can have kind of like a territorial response and i think that you know with a lot of music that's really extreme, the people who are making it, I should say very extreme and also very specific and idiosyncratic, the people who are making it don't really want it to be absorbed by people they don't approve of, or they don't want it to be appropriated by people they see as being untrue. And I, again, I I respect that idea of, um, of wanting artistic privacy, communal privacy. But again, at the same time, if you're putting something out into a public forum, even if it's only on YouTube, you are, 
automatically giving up your control of who is going to encounter it, how they interpret it, and also how they experience it. I mean, I think about this sometimes. Like, I know sometimes people probably want to check out something I listen to and they're just listening to it like this on their phone. And I'm like, oh, yeah. that's not what I intended. This is supposed <laughs> to be loud on a good sound system, but you just have to relinquish control. Otherwise, really don't put your music anywhere. Literally do not put it anywhere. If you are that fastidious about your craft and it can only be done this certain way, then you have to be really disciplined about that. And I think that that's the reason why there's certain artists who only really perform live. And I think that's cool too, because it's like, this is the way my music is supposed to be experienced. And you can't, you can't listen to it on your phone. Sorry. Um, so, you know, it's really just about, it's about making choices. Where do you, where do you think, um, how did you get serious about music as like, you know, like there, there must've been a switch at some point when you decided, you know, I'm going to go all the way with this. I'm going to like go down Go Third down. grade, Fred. Third grade. <laughs> Sick. I got, I traded a King's X tape to my friend Joey in third grade. And he gave me <laughs> license to ill and girls, girls, girls in exchange. And Sick. that was it. I, that was the, that was it. Um, yeah. I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not because it was like in third grade where I started being really into metal. And then I started reading like, um, you know, circus magazine and hit parader and like seeing all these pictures of bands on tour. And I remember again, just like talking about specific memories that are Im embedded like that, listening to Coltrane while stoned. I remember being in the car with my mom, um, in our like eighties yellow, uh, Volvo station wagon and her being like, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be in a band and tour. And she was like, what's a hard life? And I just remember thinking like, I can do it. I can yeah. totally do it. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I definitely had like the, the teenage daydreams in my, in my bedroom, you know, when I was like 13 about, you know, being like fucking slash in the paradise city video, just <laughs> playing in front of fucking thousands of people. But then you know, and that was kind of like, that was, that was the fantasy level of it for me. And then it started to become reality for me when I got exposed to DIY culture. And I started realizing that like, you know, people in my community and people in states, not very far away, but also people on the other side of the world who are essentially, you know, in most cases, not much older than me, were making their own records we're doing their own zines, we're doing their own labels, we're doing their own distros, we're printing their own t-shirts. And for me, that was like a key. And again, talking about specific memories, I remember looking at this magazine that um, Ebullition did, the heart attack zine. Of course. And uh, in the back of that, um, Kent, the editor, had made a list of all the record manufacturers that he was aware of and their contact info. And I was like, shit, there's a phone number. All I have to do is call the phone number and say, Hey, I want to make a seven inch and it can happen. And for me, that was it. It was like, it was no more about the desire to play a stadium. It was about the possibility to do music with other people. And it was within my reach. And I never really looked back after that. I, I, I didn't anticipate kind of what happened with Hydrahead and ISIS where I was just doing what I 
loved and it became a thing that was like a, a vehicle for living off of essentially. But I would have kept doing those things anyway. I just happened to get lucky that those things turned into viable self-sustaining entities essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I can put it this way. I knew from an early age, I was going to follow the path of music kind of no matter what, but I never made a strict determination about what that was going to look like or having it a need for it to turn out a certain way. Um, so it was kind of just like that idea that I'm going to do this and wherever it goes is fine by me because I'll be doing what I enjoy. Definitely. Totally. Definitely. I, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, I was at, I was at one of the early no fun fests and uh, Wolf Eyes played. It was before that sub pop record, like the first sub pop record came out and they played stabbed in the face for the first time. It was the first time anybody ever heard it. And like, I remember like about halfway through the song. And I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pulverizing tune. Uh, I, I looked up from going like this uh, for those who can't see on this zoom call. I'm like banging my head. I looked up from like slowly banging my head and I see several hundred people nodding their heads, like in the same cadence, like at the same time in the same rhythm. And like, it, it was like, I, I, I mean, it was like religious, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. like people, like there was clearly a communal experience going on and like, like based like purely on Sonics and yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, that's like, that's fucking, that, that's, that's magic. It is. Yeah, it is. it is. And I think there's also, I don't know, this is now taking it in another direction, but this is where the intention of the artist also comes into, into play in a way that I think is important um, and touches on some of what we, we were discussing earlier. Um, there's a lot of power you have in your hand as an artist at that moment. And maybe the most fundamentally important thing is that you are offering people a, an experience of if not ecstasy, at least some kind of joy or happiness. Um, And I think that there is an opportunity there, as I said, to kind of just help everybody to let go of the normal everyday stuff and, and maybe kind of break down some of those walls that exist, you know, between people during, during the day to day. Uh, But then there's also, I remember I'm thinking back to my mom saying she was at a Middle East show and ISIS was playing and she saw something similar to what you're describing where everybody was kind of head nodding in unison. And she was like, it was kind of cool, but it was also kind of alarming. And I think (laughs) she didn't say this, but I know she was thinking about like, um, she was thinking about what happens when power like that is abused. And when someone like a dictator uses that, human ability to sort of um, come together as a hive mind and push it in a really destructive direction. So again, like not to overstate the, the, the power or the importance of music. This is where as an older musician now, I've started to really think about what my responsibility as an artist is in terms of what I, what I, um, I'm trying to communicate to an audience. 
And so, yes, I want people to kind of, you know, lose themselves in the music. However, I also want to say something about the meaning of this music so that there's no ambiguity about what it means for me and what it means for the other people who are making it. Um, because, you know, there've been times where God, I can even think of a recent instance. I posted something that, you know, had to do with like social justice and, and the fight for equity. And, and some guy wrote a message about, he's like, I can't believe you're buying into this shit. You of all people. And so I started messaging with this guy and he was talking about how he thought, you know, Panopticon was about being able to see the ISIS record. Panopticon was mm -hmm. about being able to see behind, you know, all these manipulative forces at work. And he was interpreting this in a very different way from what I intended. I mean, he was essentially saying like black lives matter is working in conjunction with the Zionist uh, government behind the scene to control and manipulate people. And I'm just like, and I was thinking to myself, like, dude, if you follow my work, like, how did you read this into what I what I've been doing? And so, again, this is talking about responsibility as an artist and and having some ability to turn people's gaze in a certain direction. I feel like now it's explicitly important for me to be like, hey, this music is about love. It's about community. It's about togetherness. It's about um, appreciating difference. This is not music that's about violence and destruction for the sake of violence and destruction you know aggression is a component but it is not the end goal of what this music means and so i don't know how i got there from what you were saying mike but it was just something about that idea of like getting the crowd to move in unison and like recognizing that as cool but also recognizing that as um evidence of the power you have as an artist and what it means in terms of your intentions and what you want people to take away from your music. And um, I, sorry, I cut you off. I just had one more thing to say about that. Like I've had some complaints from certain people again, talking about like, why can't music just be music? And I'm like, music has never just been music. You yes. can think that it is, but there's almost never an artist I have ever encountered who who either consciously or unconsciously isn't projecting some very specific values through what they do, through the, 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 the sounds they make, through the way they present themselves on stage, to the visuals they use, to the people they associate themselves with, to the bands they tour with, that all has meaning. And if you're not looking at that, you're basically just sitting in a position of ignorant privilege because that's mm -hmm. all it is, is ignoring context and the meaning of context. Yeah, completely agree with you. And I've, it's, it, you know, it's something that I think, I think as someone younger, I appreciated um, ambiguity, it, like, like from the artists that I followed a lot of the times because I wanted to make, I wanted to assume that the, that these people were like kind of putting something out there that was like, more ill-intentioned uh in a way like they like like you know like they'll like the fucking you know like the murder junkies like brain bombs fan in me like not that there's anything wrong with that um it was like I, like i wanted to assume the most extreme you know um you know especially from like you know 
black metal and and noise and and whatnot. And you know, over time, like I saw lots of people lean on this ambiguity and couch some really awful shit uh, in in the midst of it. Like, you know, like, hey, that guy you're on tour with, like in the black metal band, like who's like, you know, always pretty big on like keeping politics out of things like, you know, them reading this Ezra Pound book isn't like just because they're interested in Ezra Pound or like they're just interested in literature, you know, necessarily. Like there's so much fucking there's in extreme music. Like we've had for fucking decades issues with these fucking dog whistles going off left and right. And, you know, the fucking the past the past decade has been awful and like the Trump era was, you know, a a very dark time. But like, I think if one good thing fucking came out of it is like, you know, all of like, like the all, like whatever they all right, like kind of like turned into that shit was like right at the forefront of a lot of extreme music for a really long time. Mm. And a lot of, a lot of people, myself included kind of just didn't like thought that people were kidding or like, didn't exactly know how to recognize it because of the Trump era. Now I think the majority of people and especially people in our age bracket and younger know what the fucking signs are. And like, they're not going to fuck with it for the most part. And if you are going to fuck with it, then that's your business, but I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, we're, we're discussing a lot of things here and I'm trying to come to some concise thing. I, I want to backtrack just a little bit and just say that what I choose to do with my music in terms of being more explicit about our, our intention is not something I think that needs to be applied to everything that exists. This is just the path that I've chosen because I feel like it's important to me. But it's also totally. been spurred by things I've seen from other artists who I respected, like um, William Bennett from White House and Cut Hands. You know, for years, he refused to comment on the meaning of the imagery and the lyrics that they were using for, for both White House and Cut Hands. And then finally, he was just sick of people basically, you know, interpreting their music as being pro-misogynist, in some instances pro-fascist. And he was like, look, okay you've kind of forced my hand. I can't let people continue to, to, to willfully and ignorantly misinterpret our message. And same thing, like um, uh, I have seen with some other people I follow, like musicians who I think it's fairly clear where they stand politically and people will comment on their, their posts about something that is, you know, kind of more fascist leaning and, and, or, you know, whatever racist or whatever. And the artist will respond to me like, I don't know how you've, you have interpreted what I've done in this way. So for me, there's a fine line between assuming that your audience is intelligence and also offering people enough information about your intentions so that people will know where you're coming from. Agreed. Um, totally. yeah. It's funny. You mentioned, you mentioned Brian from Lustmore and you guys had just spoken to him. And I remember reading an interview with him where he was talking about, I think he might've been talking about uh, maybe Nod and death in June. 
Mm-hmm. And some of the other stuff that existed around the time, you know, when he was coming up and throbbing gristle, um, you know, was active and, and he was um, intermittently involved in SPK. And he was like, there was people that were dabbling in fascist imagery and, you know, wearing fascist type uniforms and he, and, and thinking that they were kind of playing with this stuff. But he's like, you can't fucking play with that. It's, it's, you can't, you can't, use fascist imagery and Nazi symbolism as part of a shtick and then say that you are not those things. If you look like a Nazi and you're referencing World War II events in this very ambiguous way in your lyrics, you're a Nazi. So for me, it's the same thing. It's like people playing with this politically ambiguous shit. I'm just like, all right, this is, it was my, it was my own ignorance and my own privilege that kind of turned a blind eye to that for a while. Part of it, I could chalk up potentially to youth as well. But now the time, as you said, Mike has, has come to a certain way where it's so much more blatantly clear that, you know, for people who are operating in this realm, either you're kind of, you're kind of vocally working against that or you're choosing to just kind of uphold the status quo and, and let that, let that mentality live on and continue to burgeon. And. I, I, I completely agree. You know, it's, it's funny. I've heard from like a certain, like a, a certain number of people like really leaning into right wing stuff or to like hyper misogynistic stuff lately, like almost like consciously like going NS or going like, you know, full on in porno grind because they'll say like, that's the last of the true underground. That's like, uh, like, wow. like, like everything else is too accessible. Uh, I, I, oh, it's, it's become like this weird common argument. And uh, I, I don't think that like the ideologies espoused by like a president and an administration that like got more news coverage than possibly like any, like any presidential administration ever uh, could possibly be considered underground. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, not underground. it's half of America. Yeah. 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 And yeah, you know, it's, I'd like to think that things are are getting better, and I think that things, I think that how things kind of get better, at least for me, is to like kind of like look back and to like acknowledge like where I have kind of like turned a blind eye to like certain people, certain performers, uh, like cer- certain you know bandmates in my life, and um, like how. Like, and just become willing to be teachable and willing to evolve. Like you're not going to fucking like snap your fingers and have all the answers. Like I had, you know, a tremendous amount of like pushback internally for a number of years where like, I'd feel that people were like, you know, kind of just complaining about things that they didn't quite understand, you yeah. know, when they were talking about like the ills of, like certain corners of extreme music and they're things that I've very much kind of come around to now. Like I don't have to just like accept racism in black. (laughs) You know, like that's that, that, like, you know, that's, that, that's not how things should be, you know? And like, 
Well, you can't, you can't bet every single piece of art you encounter and, and, and expect it to hold up ideologically in relation to, to your own, uh, beliefs at the same time, as I said before, there's so much out there to support and to absorb that, you know, you can make conscious choices about it. And Mm -hmm. I think there's also something which you're kind of addressing as well, which is, you know, looking at our own responsibility and looking about our, at our own past. And I am, I am in no way absolving myself of any of the things that I have done wrong, any of the mistakes I've had, any of this, any of the beliefs that I still in some way adhere to based off the person I am and and who I was born as. But the thing that I think is important, um, more so than kind of like drawing a line in the sand between what I think is morally right and wrong is just the idea that everything we're doing is a work in progress. And all that we can offer is a step steps for ourselves and other people in the right direction, whatever we happen to believe that is. And for me, it's the idea that people can change and can grow. And I am, uh, all, um, certainly an optimist in almost all ways. I mean, I have my, my days of course, but, um, I believe in the potential for our survival and our adaptation. And I believe in our potential for change. I don't believe that it's going to involve all people across all walks of life, but I do think that there is a constant effort to be made both as an artist and as a person to try to bridge those gaps, to try to reach other people, to try to hear other people when they're, you know, maybe pointing out ways in which I am ignorant and blind and understand that all of this is just a continual process of moving towards something that looks like a, um, a better and uh, more open future for everyone. Um, and so, you know, there are times when I've, when I've willingly engaged in dialogue with people who I know I have some very big differences with, in the hopes that maybe we can have some deeper understanding of each other. Of course, I want to win those arguments and, and, <laughs> and prove to people how right I am, but I, I also am trying to remain open. And I have had some pretty painful <clears throat> moments of awakening where people have called me out on shit and I've been defensive at times and I've tried to justify my own behaviors and actions. But ultimately, I hope that I have been open enough that I've changed who I am in not who I am, but changed my view of the world and how I approach it. Um, and you know, that my own capacity to change, uh, I think is for me enough evidence to believe that that's, that's, uh, potentially true for most people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all you can do is like, is just move on and evolve and, you know, try to be, try to be the best example for, for, um, for those around you to care about are important to you. Yeah. Um, uh, this is, this is a joke, but just, <laughs> uh, I remember one of the things that was the most interesting to me in, in high school was like, I was a metal dude and a friend of mine was only into hip hop and, um, he was super into public enemy. And then there was like the anthrax public enemy video and for me, that was like, of course, it's like, okay, it's a little, at this point, maybe there are aspects of it that are a little ham fisted or whatever. But like, for me, that like, that offered so much hope. I was like, oh, my friend and I can get along and we can talk about <laughs> this thing that we have in common now. And there are these two worlds that are supposed to be 
opposed to each other coming together. And like, <laughs> there was fights between the hip hop dudes and the metal guys at my school. And now it's like, there's common ground. And of course that led to a bunch of awful shit, you yeah. know, going back to my Limp Biscuit reference from earlier. But <laughs> yeah. Before that dystopian nightmare, there was the utopian reality of anthrax and public enemy coming together. So <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, the judgment night soundtrack was a, uh, was a wonderful, like important bridge. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, there, there were some good days with biohazard and onyx. I'll go that far too. Bio, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm not one so much for, uh, for the, uh, uh, Aerosmith run DMC. Steven Tyler has ruined anything that could have been good about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. has. Um, but I, I would say, uh, yeah, public enemy, uh, and, uh, uh, public enemy anthrax through judgment night. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a more, maybe a more relevant, um, example, contemporary, more nuanced and multi-layered would be for me um, when uh, Justin Broderick and the Bug teamed up with More Mother, and for me that was again oh, yeah. a collision yeah. of worlds where I'm like, holy shit! Like these two things that I love are now combined in this new whole and it was just like i could you know it was like i couldn't have imagined a better pairing and yeah. i think i think um you know that's that again is the kind of thing that for me is like really inspiring is again to see artists who are crossing a lot of different lines and 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 doing things that are uh an obvious willingness to push everything forward socially politically artistically and that's what that's for me where it's at Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Oh man, that zonal record is so wonderful. I would have loved to have seen it live at one of those. I think it was the uh, Roadburn, maybe two or three years ago, where they did it. So hopefully, it'll happen again. Um, fellas, I got to go. Yeah, uh, we'll to go. and I could keep going forever because we've taught, touched on a lot of interesting stuff. But thank you both for for doing this. I really appreciate. Thank you for the yeah. time and. Thanks for listening to Metal Matters. Make sure you like or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Sticker, Amazon. To get the most recent episodes automatically delivered to your phone.